everybody, and welcome back to another thrilling, exciting, almost insanely good episode of Me and Mr. 80s. I'm Nick the Part, and sitting with me right now, Mr. 80s. Hi, everybody. It's Daryl. Boy, you are really over-promising. <laughs> I, no, no, I'm under-promising. It's actually going to be better than that. Wow. So, yes, uh, to avoid any confusion, I'm Daryl. I'm Mr. 80s. <laughs> and I'm the one who apparently is a big jerk. <laughs> which we've covered in another episode. And then he is Nick, and he's the me in the me in Mr. 80s. And he's going to do a lot of talking this week <laughs> because he did something kind of cool. Truly awesome. <laughs> you attended the latest Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Yes, in beautiful downtown Cleveland. Is it every three years that we get to actually host it? Actually, this is only the third time in 25 um, years. In 25, yeah. Yeah, I, I'm impressed that they got uh, everyone pretty much, except for Rod Stewart and Axl Rose, to show up. Uh, and apparently, you know, I think they, it's actually very funny, the beginning speech that they had by, you know, one of the head guys of Rock and Roll uh, Hall of Fame comes out there and he's, you know, thanking all the people who made this possible. And uh, Smokey Robinson and... Um, and like Barry Gordy or something like that, like instrumental in making this happen. You know, like they were, inst- I, I have no idea how they're instrumental in making it happen in Cleveland, but somehow they, he was one of, you know, two of the people he had to like, you know, really stress to thank. And then he thanked the, uh, Governor Voinovich. And apparently the entire crowd was Democrats. Cause they all booed him severely. <laughs> and he was taken aback. He's like, no, no, his, 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 his representative is here. You can't boo him. You know, he made this happen. He gave us money for this. <laughs> so Voinovich was probably governor when, uh, when they actually, cause you know, for the longest time it was kind of like, we're going to do this in New York City and we really don't care what you think, Cleveland, because you're Cleveland. Yeah. And then I, they did finally institute this thing where I thought it was every whatever years it was that we're going to actually have the inductions in Cleveland instead of New York. Uh, so uh, well, I will go back every fucking time they do because what I would like what awesome. I would like you to do yes is first of all before we get into the the nuts and bolts of the event uh, set the scene for us a little bit about uh, what this venue is where the venue is located what the uh, kind of what it was like. Entering the venue and what the seating was like and the layout of the interior, just so we can kind of get a visual of, you know, sort of a sense of place here. All right. Well, the place that we were going is called uh, the Public Hall in Cleveland, and it's literally in downtown Cleveland and only like a couple of blocks from where the Rock Hall is. And have you ever been there? No. Um, wow. <laughs> I cannot say that that was uh, a good place to go. <laughs> Why? Uh, well, the venue itself must have been, you know, like designed in like the twenties. So it's ridiculously small, and they have like no bathrooms. And I mean, the line for the ladies' bathroom was was so ridiculous. It's just like people were just giving up. I mean, just we're like squatting in the lobby. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's you know they. Uh, they had concession areas, but they were tiny little closets, and the main one wasn't open until after the venue, the, the event started, because it was in the one common area, and if you had everyone crammed into there, they couldn't get to their seats. I mean, it was just, what a horribly designed place. I mean, so. so this, this thing was, this thing was built back when Americans were like topping out at 5'9". Oh yeah. And, and so. And, and you are. Six foot nine and four hundred pounds, folks. I am the not. I, I am the exact opposite of anyone who ever seats <laughs> was designed this seat for. I mean, so the the venue and everything. I mean, just and they had you walking up ramps to get up to where it is because we were all all the um, all of the pay all the non VIPs were in the balcony section. Mm-hmm. So you had to walk up these ramps. Now, if you've been at a baseball stadium where they have the ramps where you keep going up and this way and up that way, it's okay because you're kind of herded like cows, but you actually, they open that area up so it doesn't feel like, like a claustrophobic herding into a slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. 
But no, when you're when you're in a venue and everything's closed in, it's really kind of creepy. You know, you just have this sea of humanity going, you know, massively pushed into these corners and crevices, and you know, it was just yeah, that was a terrible way to start. Um, but once you got to the place, yeah, the seats were small, but. This venue. Did you just kind of stuff one cheek in and sit on your side, or what? I, I got lucky. There was no one sitting next to me. <laughs> you did get lucky, especially since the ticket, you know, was fifty bucks. So yeah. someone just wasted money. It's probably a scalper. Um, so I won't be too hard up about that. But so that was that was the godsend, was where I could, you know, sit comfortably. But the uh, the entire place only seated like twelve thousand people, and the way they had the um the VIP section, I kind of thought that they would just have, having seen footage of the uh, Rock Hall inductions at other places, they just sort of have like a big round table and they have people sitting there and then they just have them spread out along the floor. Mm-hmm. And then they'll have an, uh, you know, an upper area where uh, us wonderful peons will sit. And that's what I thought it was going to be too. Well, it, it is, but the way they designed it was really weird. Well, they, they wanted to have apparently a way for um handicapped uh viewers to be able to see and see the uh the venue so they had this intricate ramp section so you're you're sitting in a rectangle and at the back end of the rectangle um on the opposite end of where the stage is is where they built this this big ramp to get up to a a riser where uh handicapped people could sit mm-hmm. and it was above where halfway through that rectangle is where all the Sound and video equipment was because they're taping this to air on uh, HBO. HBO. So they had a huge setup, which I can only partially see because it was obscured by some of the ramps and stuff. But you know, they had a ton of cameramen. I mean, they had six or eight cameras. They had a, a floating one that went across the top of the venue. So they had a big setup there, and then only like the very front end of that uh, rectangle was where they all sat the people, and then on the wings. They had like lesser VIPs <laughs> who were on a little bit of a riser so they could see over the lowercase v. <laughs> well, you know, it, it was one of those things where it's like, you know, uh, you know, uh, Duff McKagan's mom is sitting, you know, in the front of the rectangle and in the middle of the rectangle, it's, you know, the aunt and the uncle. I was going to say, so Hall would be in the front row, <laughs> Oates would be in the back. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But that's, so that's, that meant that they said that there were 6,000 of us in the balcony. And there was, there couldn't have been, there couldn't have been more than a thousand in the entire bottom. And I'd seen maybe 500. Mm-hmm. So, the greatest fucking concert on the planet, and I guess sit there with 6,500 to 7,000 people. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just unbelievable how, how much of how how much of awesome that was just to have that kind of a small um, kind of look into how the how the uh, the concert was. I mean, it was really well. Now this this wasn't this was from the uh, I'm showing Daryl a picture of the Moondog Coronation, which was at the Gund, mm-hmm. and you can kind of see good, but you know we're kind of not that far away, you know, a little farther away. But I don't know if you can see. The difference in that, but the stage is a whole lot closer. That's what I was going to ask. If given the size of the venue, then also the fact that you're in the balcony, because <clears throat> you know a lot of times balconies they get a bad rap. But the way that they're built, you're, the way you're kind of pushed out and over, and so it almost feels like you're hovering over the people under you, and so you actually feel a lot closer to the stage than some of the people that are even on the floor. So is that what you found? Well, actually, no, because for the way this was set up, it was almost like. Uh, we were on the outer edges of a basketball court. Mm-hmm. So you weren't really hanging over anybody, but it was such a small rectangle below you that it really was. I mean, the, uh, the Moondog Coronation, you know, we were sitting in the exact same kind of area for both where, you know, the stage is on, you know, one end of a rectangle. We're on the exact opposite from it. So we're having direct line of sight there. Instead of being on the the sides or anything, so comparatively, I could kind of see, you know, at the Moon Dog, you know, when you know Sam Cooke came out or uh, Mickey Dolan's, you know, they kind of looked like 
you kind of had to look at the screens to get definition of what they looked like and stuff mm-hmm. like that because you were kind of far. But I could definitely tell, you know, I could definitely see the people on the stage at the the Rock Hall, you know. I could tell, you know, Duff and Slash and, you know, uh, the Chili Peppers and all that kind of stuff. It was a lot easier to see people without having to see all the video screens they put up, too. <clears throat> One final question about about this. How, how would you compare it to, like, EJ? Because like when, when we saw Kevin Smith and EJ Thomas, I kind of felt like we were almost, like, falling on top of the stage because we were so... It was so steep oh, and so... That's very new school, and this being incredibly old school, there's no ramp. I mean, there's no... Uh, well, you know what? There's, uh, it's not ramped up in a very high, you know, like what they do to all the stadiums nowadays where they try and make the angle. So it's not steep. But it, but there isn't a lot of room. And I think that was one of the things that I thought was very odd to have a rock concert in is that when you stood up at your seat, even though it wasn't, uh, angled high, there was only a tiny little bit of, you know, space for your feet to go. Mm Mm-hmm. So you really couldn't rock out, you know. I mean, people couldn't really, you know, move around in there uh, when they stood up a lot because there's no room. So it was kind of like everyone was wild and supportive and crazy happy to be there, but you couldn't really jump up and rock out, <laughs> you know. Right. Or else you might fall and die. Right. <laughs> All right. So we've 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 set the scene. You know where we're sitting. You know what we're watching. And uh, uh, so now. Now you, Nick, can you can take us through however you want. You can either do a point by point, you know, behind me now, history is happening, or you can just share some random, you know, favorite memories. However you want to take us there. Well, uh, I'll just go sequentially, at least uh, in in my thoughts. That way, it's easier to remember them. Uh, Green Day opened the uh, event uh, playing a, a song. And uh, Billy Joe later said that they wanted uh, Green Day to open up with a, um, uh, a Guns N' Roses song. And he tells a great story about how his kid is learning how to play guitar by watching videos on YouTube. So he's like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm good. I can do this. I'll just watch some guy on YouTube do, you know, like Welcome to the Jungle. And <laughs> he watches some kid on YouTube. And he said... I just put my instrument down and said, nope, sorry, we can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so they opened it with a uh, a song from uh, American Idiot that I didn't actually know. I mean, sounded good, very energetic, you know, really got the crowd going. But it was, I, I thought it was an odd choice where they didn't even, didn't do something more Rock Hall related other than just, you know, you know, like, I don't know, maybe do a cover of one of the other, you know, do a cover of the Faces or you know, something rocks. else. Yeah. yeah, or Cleveland Rocks, exactly. So, you know, interesting but good energetic start. That got everyone up on their feet and all that kind of stuff. And is this before or after the suit comes out and gives a spiel? Actually, that's what I was going to mention, is that it gets them hyped and revved up and charged up, and they're all in their seats and, you know, up out of the seats, and he's yelling at them, get out of your seats, you know, stand up and rock, come on. <laughs> and then they finish, and they talk for 20 minutes. Oh, my God. <laughs> and I'm like... Well, yeah, maybe it was more like ten minutes, but it's you know they had the rock. They had one of the rock guys in there who goes out there and thanks all the people, and you know this thanks all the money for for you know showing it out so that we could do this. And then Yan Winter comes up there and you know gives a little backstory uh, for the for the event for the evening for the people that are going to be there. Is Yan Winter still gay? I don't know. I think he is. Anyway, go ahead. Mm, all right. Um, so then the first. One was, uh, oh, Freddie King, who was a, um, blues guitarist, um, old school blues guitarist and, you know, influenced a lot of people and they played a clip of his and I haven't really been able to find much of his stuff to listen to on, you know, all these venues. So I, I, I knew some of what he did, but I didn't really listen to him before we, before we left, we were you know, playing all the other, uh, nominees and stuff just for, Mm-hmm. Fun and getting psyched, and uh, the, pl- the clip they played of his, it really sounded like uh, you could tell exactly where Eric Clapton got, you know, uh, his sound and tone for his guitar. I mean, he just he sounded, you know, like everything Eric Clapton wanted to be, you know, in 1968. Interesting. <laughs> okay. And 
Is, is there a particular number that Freddie King's associated with? You know, there is, and honest to God, I wish I, I was gonna, I was trying to remember what it was. Um, I had two songs going through my head, and then I realized it was because they both have King in the title. <laughs> Crawling King Snake and King Bee. I, I'm thinking it was like, uh, I should probably just punch up his freaking thing. Um, cause he, you know, it's the kind of thing where you, you know his songs by, by the covers that other people have done. Right. Um, but his, uh, his daughter came in there and, uh, told another great story. Is his daughter and, like 90? Uh, I'm sorry. It was his, yeah, no, his daughter. No, he, she was, uh, she was maybe five or six in like, you know, 68 or something. Okay. So, and, uh, they, they went to a, uh, a venue to see a show. And, you know, she's five or six. She isn't really thinking much about it. But they n- announce who all is playing there. And one of the names she hears, she's like, that's my dad's name. And then, you know, later it goes on and she goes out there and she's like, wait, there's my daddy. And wait, there's my uncle. And she's like, oh, my God, my dad's a musician. She's like, oh, this is why he was so mad when we broke his guitar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she's like, it was a, you know, a, a 65 gold top Les Paul. And the crowd just goes, <gasps> And that's what I loved about going to see this thing is that it wasn't just seeing the event, but like everyone there loves music. Uh, I think I, I, I told you when I just briefly about it, it's like it didn't matter if you were, you know, Buddy Holly's guitarist, or if you were Slash, they loved you and they went crazy just to be there, you know, and seeing you and honoring you. And I just thought that was a wonderful, happy, loving little, you know, thing to be a part of. Very, very egalitarian, very democratic. Well, they, they just, you know, they knew who you were and they loved you. Uh, all right, there we go. Freddie King, have you ever loved a woman? Which was, uh. Not the Brian Adams song. No, but it was. <laughs> Wouldn't that be funny? Uh, um, it was on uh, Layla and Assorted Other Love Songs from uh, Derek and the Dominoes. Um, hide Away, Let's Hide Away and Dance. No. That was, Have You Ever Loved a Woman is the best one I, I see on there. Something tells me if he had known at the time how many blues musicians were going to have King as their last name, that he, <laughs> he would have something else. something else. Prince? Yeah. <laughs> No, that can't work. Uh, Squire? <laughs> Freddy Squire. <laughs> like Billy. <laughs> Billy Squire, yes. Blues legend, Billy Squire. <laughs> Everybody, hang your head. <laughs> the stroke is the word. Um, then they did Donovan, and how old is John Mellencamp? He is around 60. He, he seemed like such a, a crotchety old, you kids get off my lawn. That's been his <laughs> shtick. What did he do? Well, it's just the, the way he was, uh, talking. He was telling a story of how he met Donovan, who apparently was a huge idol of his, and he said, you know, uh, you know, you, you can call it, uh, Oh, what was the word he was? You know, like, you can call it a dedication to, but I just call it what it was. I ripped him off. <laughs> and, and frankly, I don't hear Donovan in, <laughs> in his music. <laughs> so now Donovan's the mellow yellow guy, right? Yeah, Sunshine Superman, you know, got the Beatles into, uh, um, Transcendental Meditation I with seem, Maharishi. I seem to remember you and I talking about this a while yeah, we ago. Go, yeah. When he got nominated, and I was like, really? Donovan? I mean, what's next? The, you know, the 1910 <laughs> Fruit Gum Company? Uh, but okay. Well, his, his folk rock sound was very influential. And apparently, you know, it's just like, I, I don't know who's influenced by him, but I, I know that, you know, he's always, he's referenced as an influence. But, I don't hear it in John Mellencamp. But anyway, he's saying that he's, uh, the, the way he met him was that he was, uh, he was telling that when you work with me, basically sometimes I can be an asshole. And he's like, so I was talking with, you know, my guitar player and one thing led to another and we're, and we're, 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 we're trying to, uh, punch each other's lights out. 
And so they're rolling around on the floor, and uh, it ends up spilling out of their recording studio and onto the, the main lobby area. And he's about to wail on this guy. He lifts his hand up to punch him in the face, and he looks up and goes, Oh, and he stands up and he goes, Donovan, Mr. Donovan, I, I love your work. <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> so Donovan was at the same recording studio? Yes. So Donovan performed? Yes, he did. And he, he, the first one, he sounded a little shaky on his vocals, but uh, then he did uh, Season of Witch with Mellencamp and sounded great. Hmm. I mean, they really did a good job. And uh, his his uh, acceptance speech, he he... Wanted to do something, but he didn't really know the words, so he said, you know, I'm a poet, so I'll write a poem. So he basically just recited an original poem as a uh, thank you for induction, which was really quite cool. Nice. I, I really wonder, I want to see the thing in May, because I'm really curious to see what, from what I saw, actually gets into the show. Because they only have like two and a half hours, and i got to figure that, you know, 99% of what they want to put in there is going to be the music. Yeah, I assume we're going to have a lot of chili peppers and a lot of GNR. Yeah, oh yeah, <clears throat> which frankly they should. Although, I'll, I'll, I'll get to more of that later. But uh, next up was Laura Nero, who I, do you know who Laura Nero is? She is one of those... Um, I've heard the name yeah, forever. She's one of those names, and I, I get her, her style confused a lot with Nina Simone, because it mm. seems like, it, she's sort of like the, what, the female Chanteuse... Um, she seemed to be a folk rocker that, yeah. you know, that was like, I don't know where she became from between, you know, like Joan Baez and like, uh, Ricky Lee Jones. And I, I don't know where in that spectrum was she before them or after them or did she influence them or. The reason I'm familiar with her is, uh, guilty pleasure alert. Uh, <laughs> she apparently was a big influence on early, early Melissa Manchester. Hmm. And Melissa Manchester, yes, I'm a fan of Melissa Manchester. Oh, come on, you're Mr. 80s. You have to be a fan of Melissa Manchester. I'm sorry. I mean, I feel like I should put my nuts in a shoebox every time I say that, but I'm sorry. I can't help it. Uh, she's had many phases of her career, but when she first started out, I would say, yes, Ricky Lee Jones is probably a, another good comparison. She was kind of in that sort of crunchy granola, may have armpit hair kind of school of female singers. Yes. And apparently Laura Nero was kind of the pioneer of that type of thing. Okay. And so uh, they had uh, Sarah Barillis, who I know of just from a couple of songs I've heard of hers, like her voice, you know, piano chanteuse type thing. And she did a good version of whatever song was Laura's song, but I didn't know the song, and I really don't know anything of her, so it couldn't. So it was kind of one of those, I enjoyed it, but I didn't really understand it. Mm-hmm. And she was inducted by Bette Midler, who was, uh, by the end of her speech, was breaking down. You know, was having trouble getting through it because she just loved her so much. Hmm. Um, How did Bette's uh, boobs look? You know, inquiring minds want to know. I know she's I like 80, that, but still. I hadn't really even noticed. Okay, that, that tells you. Probably not that good. Hmm. I'm just here to ask the questions that the man on the street wants to know. <laughs> the man on the street, yes. Okay, next. Um, gosh. Who was next? Oh, then then they they did a lot of the uh, before they the, this was the, where they the the uh, the sandwich kind of people that you probably didn't know as well before they get to the superstars at the end. So this was the um, what I think is a great idea. What they should have done at the beginning was they inducted like Buddy Holly, but they didn't induct his band. Or they inducted Smokey Robinson, and they didn't induct the Miracles. Like in the past, they've, they've exactly yeah. they've already they've already inducted these people. They already inducted James Brown, Smokey Robinson, Buddy Holly, and they didn't induct the bands that they were in. And um, a lot of you know, even apparently, uh, I read in a review that Jan slipped up when he talked at the beginning, calling them sidemen, which is kind of what they were trying not to avoid: is that they're they're not sidemen, they're the band that the person who they inducted was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, so they had uh, Smokey induct them, and it was this is a, a moment that you won't see in uh, the HBO thing, I'm sure of, because they especially made him change it. 
he's inducting all these people, inducting all these people, and then he said, and I just want to say that none of this would have been possible if it wasn't for Barry Gordy, and he gives this little, you know, like two or three minutes thing about Barry Gordy, and then he said, and here they are, and they stopped the show, <laughs> and he just like, where are you guys? And then you saw the guy, you know, the stage man at the side come and go, you can do it again. You do it. He's like, I just did. And he's like, you can say that. And he's like, I just said that. And he's like, and then you didn't hear something. He's like, and now I'm going to introduce, you know, the, the band, 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 band. And now he said it because they had to, they were going to edit out his Barry Gordy speech. So I was like, that was a little uncomfortable. <laughs> so are you saying that he just talked about Barry Gordy but didn't talk about the guys? Well, no, the first no he, time? Did, he did, but he was, the, the script that they were having him say was that they wanted to induct all the members of the bands and then throw it to the bands and they were going to come out. Mm-hmm. So he threw it to, he kept introducing all the bands and then before the last band, which was the Miracles, he put in his Barry Gordy speech and they were making him say it all without the Barry Gordy speech because they were going to edit out his interesting his tribute to Barry Gordy. <clears throat> can you make Smokey Robinson do anything? Well, apparently you can because <laughs> and he did well, it. And he was one of the people instrumental in bringing this thing there. So I'd be like, if you, I'm Smokey Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, if you don't like it, <laughs> suck it, tuck titties. I'm Smokey Robinson. <laughs> Yeah, so that was, uh, that, that was. Okay, no, and if I was the guy, if I was the guy, cause you, you know what happens, they're all backstage and they're going, somebody's gonna go tell Smokey to do it again. I'm <laughs> not gonna tell Smokey to do it again. This guy, and he actually plays another part in just a few moments from that. Uh, he's the, some sort of stage manager who's in charge of the, you know, coordinating the talent on the stage, because then they bring out all the, uh, surviving band members from whoever, you know, from the, from the crickets, from the miracles. Um, I can't remember what, um, James Brown's is, uh, oh, uh, the, JVs? the Furious, no, the, oh, the Fabulous, Fabulous Flames. Fabulous Flames. And apparently, and I didn't know this oh, the either. Famous, the Famous Flames. Famous Flames. And <laughs> his first, you know, round of hits, um, came while he was in that band. So, like, some of the, like, biggest known hits you know of his was when he was in the span so when the guy finally got a chance to speak he's like i really want to thank you guys you know for for inducting us because we're a band and we were a band when we had these huge hits and you've basically ignored us for the past 20 years and i'm now the only surviving member of his band and i'm really glad to finally be in the rock hall where we belong I was like, hell yeah! <laughs> so, so, oh, so he was not really happy. He was kind of like, we're all dead now, thanks. He was really happy to be there, but I think he was really pissed that nobody else could be there with him. Mm-hmm. So, that was interesting. But then, um, I think it was Buddy Holly's guitarist was talking a lot. And he just sort of kept on going, like no one was telling him to pass the mic. Was it interesting or was it dull? No, it was it was interesting, but you kind of got that sense that he was kind of going a little too long. And then when they finally said, you know, when they, you finally got that point, like he was going to pass it along, and he didn't. He said, and he said, well, you know, the the guy next to me is, you know, one of the miracles, and he said, you know, he wanted me to tell you guys, and he starts telling. And then you see the stage manager again come up on the side wings, and you can see him like he's like he's he's ready to pounce on the guy and like grab the microphone off him. He's, <laughs> but he's kind of debating. And then as the guy keeps talking, he keeps thinking like he's going to pass it along. So he kind of like gets there, he gets up up and then he backs away. <laughs> oh, your mic. We lost your mic. Oh. Am I back? Yeah, you're back. Okay. Sorry, I didn't mean to lose your momentum. But. <laughs> no, and then, so he just sort of keeps going back and forth and back and forth, trying to figure out whether or not he's going to, like, run up there and, like, take charge of the situation. And then finally, you know, the guy just relents and, and moves on to the next guy. It sounds like an SNL sketch. <laughs> it was just it was, it was another one of those just funny things where you're just sort of like, you know, <laughs> that guy's got to have a lot of stress. <laughs> I couldn't do it. If somebody said, you've got to go tell Smokey Robinson to shut up, I'd be like, I quit. (laughs) I'm not doing it. He's Smokey Robinson. 
He can pull out the phone book <laughs> and start reading it word for word, and I'm not going to tell him to stop. <laughs> that's right. Wow. That's okay. Crazy. All right. But that that's interesting. I'll be curious to see how much of the uh, famous Flames guy. Uh, now, is is his argument? Because I mean, to my knowledge, those singles were not credited to the famous Flames. And see, that's I think wondering where they, um, how they maybe that's how they inducted all these people to begin with because it was, you know, it was Buddy Holly's single, but it was the band that was on the record was Buddy Holly and the Crickets. So it was James Brown, but it was James Brown and the Famous Flames who was playing on the record. So I'd, even I'd if be it was, curious to know if that was record label stuff, if they for whatever reason felt that you know, the, they lead, wanted to the lead singer was more marketable mm-hmm. and. Because you know a lot more of that stuff went on back in the early days of of rock and roll record labels, exactly. but I'd never heard anything about that before. Yeah. I, I mean, I'd always heard, especially with James Brown, that you know he was always very, quite obviously, the creative force and was always very much in charge of the musicians who played behind him, mm-hmm. and you know was pretty much the Svengali who told them what to play and how to play it. And you know, when you think when you hear James Brown, you don't. You don't think, uh, you know, world famous soul collaborator, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, that's, that's just interesting. Yeah, oh, it was. And, uh, you know, if it gets people to go back and check those things out, always a good thing. Well, I feel for the guy. I mean, I, I, feel, oh, yeah. I feel, I feel for that guy for, you know, being, being that close to the creation of history and, uh, being relegated to a footnote. And I also, I, I would be angry if my, you know, my brothers in arms were not there to finally enjoy that with me. So. Yeah. But again, it's also that, you know, tinged with honors that, you know, you finally get the recognition. So it's great to have the recognition, but how much, you, how much do you say, thank you so much for the recognition and hey fuckers, where were you 20 <laughs> years ago? <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Um, next up was the Beastie Boys. And, uh, and for people who don't know, MCA was not able to attend because apparently he's recovering from cancer, which I had exactly. not heard that before. I had thought it, I'd heard something about it, but I actually thought he was dead. So <laughs> I, I thought he'd passed away, but I, I, he's he's still alive and kicking. He's still with us. All right. So what happened? How, how do they how do they handle that induction? Who who induction? Um, that was uh, public enemy uh, Chuck D. And he showed up with uh, LL Cool J, who was not supposed to be there, but uh, he actually, it seems like he wanted to be there because, as he uh, said, I owe my entire career to the Beastie Boys. Because, in case none of you know this, they played my tape for Rick Rubin, and Rick Rubin signed me because of it. I did not know that. I know. I didn't either. <laughs> so, you Especially know. since his album came out before theirs. Yeah. Okay, good. I I thought that was the case, but I was like, I, I okay, good. So I, that's what I thought was the weirdest part about that, because <laughs> I thought he was already with. I thought he and Ruben were the label, and then they came along. Yeah, because so, I mean, radio was if Def if if radio was not Def Jam's first LP release, it was definitely its first hit release. Yeah. All right. So, but that's what made him apparently want to go up there, and you know, he gave some, uh, you know. Recollections about you know meeting them and uh, Chuck D. <laughs> Chuck D's thing was uh, you know uh, you got to give me uh, three minutes for hip hop and then he keeps talking and he's like all right I got to keep going I, st- I still got two minutes for hip hop you know <laughs> he's just uh, it's a good speech and I guarantee it's all going to be on the HBO special so I-, I won't bother trying to recount it all. They're going to do it way cooler than I ever could. <laughs> I'm surprised though that it's Chuck D because, uh, in terms of like old school, old school rappers that I associate with the Beastie Boys, uh, Run DMC is is who comes to mind. Well, he was a uh, he was saying that he was an influence. They were an influence on him. That's nuts because Chuck D's not really fond of white people. <laughs> well, apparently he's a fond of these three. All right. Uh, the, uh, the induction, the speech that they gave, um, was basically, uh, uh, someone else I saw this pointed out, it was like a love letter to New, to New York. You know, they basically were saying how, you know, we, we became something 
because we lived in New York, because New York was such an influence on us. All the music we heard and all the different boroughs and all the different people and all the, you know, the, the way that we grew up and where we grew up and the people we grew up around made us who we are. So. And we're pissed that we're being inducted in Cleveland. <laughs> Actually, no, they seemed, they seemed okay with it, but right. they, they didn't seem mean about it. They did seem, uh, happy to be inducted. Maybe not happy to be inducted in Cleveland. Maybe they would have preferred New York, but still. Now, did anyone perform uh, as their proxy since they, they did? Would... Oh, I, yeah. That was that was the best uh, surprise awesomeness of the night. Yes, the the performance since they did not want to perform without uh, Adam, they got three guys to perform for them, and they got. Um, the lead singer for Gym Class Heroes. I can't remember his name right Travis, now. Travis, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's the B. Um, Bickle? No, I'm sorry. Uh, and uh, the lead singer for The Roots, which was their entire backing band, mm-hmm. and Kid Rock. Oh, my. That was fucking awesome. <laughs> when When they came out, and they came out in matching lime green jumpsuits, and then, you know, I mean, Roots is... Fucking awesome to begin with. Although, oddly enough, the first half of the show was, uh, the band leader was, of course, as it always is, Paul Schaefer. Paul Schaefer. So, two-thirds of late night <laughs> was was represented by Paul Schaefer and the Roots. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, that, well, that's weird. <laughs> so, uh, did they do a, a medley, or? Yes, yeah, they just did a, a medley of songs. And uh, did they, because I, you know, it, the Beasties have got a hate-hate relationship with Fight for Your Rights, so did they do Fight for Your Right? Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely awesome. If anything else, that's the performance that you should... Uh, find when they uh, the beasties have tried to pretend that song doesn't exist uh, well they didn't have to perform perform it so yeah <laughs> i think that's the perfect way to do it yeah. we don't like performing it we'll just get these guys to it. and yeah they sounded great they were awesome they looked like they were having a blast and the crowd went bananas wow and then kid rock showed his penis to the audience <laughs> i'm just surprise. making that up and we are now going to pause discussing Nick's adventures at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. Uh, and I'll be honest with you and tell you why, because we, we talked about it, and then it was more than an hour, and we know how much people in cyberspace hate shows that are an hour, so we're split <laughs> into two shows. So it's going to be the supersized double episode. You're going to have to wait till the cliffhanger to be resolved <laughs> next week when we give you part two. So we're just going to finish this show now by playing the ever-popular Doug Benson game, or guess the album. <laughs> I always describe what I think the Doug Benson game is, Nick. What do you think the Doug Benson game is? It's a it's a fun little competition that everyone can enjoy playing along with at home. It's three questions. Uh, an album is given, uh, described through a, uh, a review, but all of the most obvious, uh, parts of it are taken away, like the band, the members, and the songs. And what you're left with is a guess of what is that album. We'll do it three times, see who, uh, does, uh, better than the other person, and please follow along at home. And enjoy. So we've been doing this uh, by genre. Yes. So. Well, let's see here. I'll pull it up. We're using the All Music app by Rovi, which is a listing of all the reviews from the allmusic.com that you can go check out for yourself. And then they just put them on a nice little app so that we can play on an iPad give you those are the rock categories you can pick a category and uh find something you like <laughs> asian pop <laughs> <laughs> oh of course we love asian pop that actually be pretty funny but i'm not i'm not going to know anybody <laughs> i'm not going to do that to you man they've really got some uh interesting subcategories here oh i know all right we're going to go with frat rock i don't even know what that means <laughs> Rock. But we're going with frat rock. Is that frat rock? We'll turn it up, dude. <laughs> well, give me a beer, dude. So we'll do frat rock and oh my, this is going to be hard because 
a lot of the stuff. Is it all Chili Peppers? It's from the 50s and the 60s. It's like, oh, we're not going to know the album titles. That's just not fair. Uh, we go from frat rock to French rock. Parlez-vous français? Actually, I don't, so fuck off. What the hell is Hot Rod? <laughs> hot Rod? This is uh, well, he was a, uh, he was a basketball player for the Cavs. <laughs> this is, uh, okay, we're just going to go with Pop. <laughs> pop. Yeah. <clears throat> we're just going to go with Pop. Pop Rock or Pop the Category? I see why you do this now. Because <laughs> it really is kind of hard to... Screw it. Punk New Wave. Oh, there it's we go. It's me and Mr. 80s, damn it. There you go. All right. Punk New Wave. Well, so uh, hopefully you've enjoyed the first half of the Rock Hall review. We have... Uh, we have Mr. 80s freaking out. <laughs> Technology is a bitch. It really is. <laughs> All right, I'm ready. All right. From the cover design to the haircuts and overall design of the group, and first and foremost, the music, this album is representative of the 80s at its best as it gets. Ooh. It's the original lineup of this band's High Point. And just as likely the entire band as a whole. Its fusion of style and substance ensures that even many years after its release, it remains as listenable and danceable as ever. The quintet integrates its sound near perfectly throughout. The rhythm section providing both driving propulsion and subtle pacing. I gotta skip ahead past all the song title stuff. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the album's two biggest smashes burst open the door in America <clears throat> for this style of new wave. One of the singles blended a tight guitar heavy groove with the electronic production and a series of instant hooks, while the title song was even more anthemic with a great sax break adding to the soaring atmosphere. From start to finish, a great album that has outlasted its era. Wow. That's a lot of superlatives. I mean, it's a good record, but wow, the way they talk about it, you'd think it was Thriller. It's not. (laughs) Wow. Um, Hmm. Quintet is what throws me. That's fine. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> oh, boy. thank you. Um, I was just trying to think, because I was thinking it was, you know, like, London Calling by the Clash, but I don't think there's five people in the Clash. No. <laughs> so, I was like, oh, okay, maybe not. Uh, quintet with a horn solo and much superlatives. Um, <clears throat> horn solo. That, I, that, that is totally... Catching me. Um, sax break. Oh, I'm sorry, sax. Yeah, sax break. Um, <clears throat> wow. Uh, Blondie? <laughs> I just have no idea. No, no, let me tell you some of the things that I left out. Okay. I left out New Romantic. Mm, okay. And I left out Nagel. Duran Duran. Duran Duran's um, the Rio. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, okay, that's a quintet. Darn. You've got Simon, Nick, and the Taylor Boys. <laughs> Good stuff. i got to say, any opportunity that I have to really talk about Duran Duran, and I think I've, I've said it before, but it really is, you know... The quality of songwriting that is exhibited on their first handful of albums, I think people really need to revisit it because it's it's quite remarkable. I agree. Because we, we've discussed that they kind of you know they they suffer a little bit from too pretty syndrome. People assume that they're just too damn good looking to be talented, but uh, they they never really got their due. I don't think as hit makers. <laughs> All right, ready? Yep. Uh. This album is a self-titled debut that is jokingly referred to as their greatest hits album. Still a rotation, still in rotation on rock radio. Um, whereas most bands of the late '70s embraced either punk, 
slash new wave or hard rock, this band were one of the first bands to do the unthinkable, merge the two styles. Uh, song, song, songs. Um, wow. Um, they just talk a lot about the songs. Um, uh, the lead singer's supreme pop sensibility, oh, uh, add to their style, the, uh, lead singer's supreme pop sensibilities, and you have an album that appealed to new waivers, rockers, and top 40 fans. With flawless performances, songwriting, and production, this album remains one of rock's all-time classics. Oh my god. Wow, you, I really need some more details because... Um, let's see. <clears throat> I mean, issued on the Electra label? That helps. That helps. I think we're talking about the cars. Yes. I don't know if I deserve that one or not, though. <laughs> well, that's good. <clears throat> nope, I won't give it to me. <laughs> Damn. All right, there you go. So that counts as a no, because I had to have the label. Uh, damn, damn, damn. Double damn. <laughs> uh, so the next episode will contain the second half of the uh, Rock Hall review, plus it will also contain another uh game of the Doug Benson game, which we've already recorded, and I got one right. So all of you who've been following along where I was 0 for 6, I did actually get one right. This one will supersede it, so I, I may actually get two, maybe even three right. You're well, ruining the mystery, man. <laughs> something they can look forward to. I finally get one right. Don't forget we'll be doing a uh, special on Live Aid, so if you have any recollections or interesting stories about your remembrances of the uh, awesome concert event that was Live Aid, feel free to give us a uh, shout-out on Facebook or send us a email at mr80s at rockamail.com. And here we go. Okay. If this band's previous album was Mental Anguish, then this album marks the progression toward emotional healing, hmm. a particularly bold sort of catharsis, called from the two members' shared attraction to primal scream therapy. The album also heralded a dramatic maturation in the band's music, away from the synth-pop brand with which it was unjustly seared following the debut, and toward a complex, enveloping pop sophistication. Songwriting took a huge leap forward, drawing on reserves of palpable emotion and lovely, protracted melodies that draw just as much on soul and R&B music as they do on immediate pop hooks. I'm telling you right now that I would not get hung up on the soul and R&B aspect, because I don't know what they're talking about there. Uh, the album could be called Pseudo-Conceptual, as each song holds its place and each is integral to the overall tapestry, a single-minded resolve that is easy to overlook when an album is as commercially successful as this one was. Hmm. It contains no less than three huge commercial radio hits. The album only seems earnestly passionate and immediate, and each song has the same driven intent and the same glistening remoteness. It's not only a commercial triumph, it is an artistic tour de force, a timeless pop classic, one of the finest statements of the decade. I would tell you that the superlatives that the previous review just ladled on the Cars album, mm -hmm. we all understand that that is true. This mm -hmm. guy, I think, is pouring it on a little thick. So oh, I would not be thinking of this as like one of the albums that they'd make a T-shirt out of. Oh, damn. Well, that that, that discounts what I, what I, I was going to say, uh, police synchronicity, too. Or police, yeah. Um, but if it's not as good as that, um, <laughs> uh Wow. Um, 
I have no idea. <laughs> Songs from the Big Chair by Tears for Fears. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Which you know that this interesting trivia uh, that was almost uh, the first album to have three, uh, the first album in the eighties to have three number one hits off of it. But uh, Head Over Heels did not make it to number one. Shout and uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World did. So the album from the 80s, this is a great one to pull out at parties. Um, the first album in the 1980s decade to have three number one singles off of it, everybody's going to say Thriller. Mm-hmm. It was actually Make It Big by Wham. Oh, wow. I guess you pull that out at parties if you want everybody to think that you're an ass. I'm sorry. <laughs> I realized I just said that. And you probably don't want to be like me at parties. The, the guy nobody wants to stand next to by the dip because he's asking arcane bullshit about the 80s. But if you do want to be that guy, then by all means, pull that one out. And they'll just run away from you in droves. You know, this case was really good, but I don't want it that bad. <laughs> He's still over there. <laughs> oh, no. Not only does he talk about the 80s a lot, I think he really likes cheese. <laughs> There's an ad for Geico right now that I don't want to like. But have you if you've seen it, it's, it's a guy who wants to uh, get his uh, personals ad out there, but he doesn't want to do it in a regular way, so he does it while singing karaoke. <laughs> so he changes the lyrics of uh, um, Bonnie Tyler, uh, Total, Eclipse of, the Total Heart. Eclipse of the Heart. Oh, yes, I have seen that. That is pretty awesome. <laughs> Something about, I'm into Spanish cheese. <laughs> My hairline is receding, but I'm getting a weave. Getting a weave! It's just, I just love that. I don't, I'm into Spanish cheese. I don't know why that, every time I hear that, that line makes me laugh. <laughs> Alright. Let's go with there we go. Alright. Bring that down a little bit. No, no, I'm not. Maybe you're not. Okay, all right, we'll do that. Am I still on? Yep. Check one. Still on. <laughs> I'll tell you if you're not. <laughs> all right. Well, da, da, da. these two songs were both major hits in 1972 to the surprise of this artist and the music industry. And the singer suddenly had a hot commodity. He used his newly won clout to make the most ambitious album of his career. This album was the musical equivalent of a drug-addled kid set loose in a candy store. The album's songs, which form a loose storyline about a doomed romance between chemically-fueled bohemians was fleshed out with a huge, boomy production and arrangements overloaded with guitars, keyboards, horns, strings, and any other kitchen sink that was handy. And while the artist has been uh, often accused of focusing on the dark side of life, he and the producer approached this album as their opportunity to make the most depressing album of all time. It's got to be Berlin by Lou Reed. <laughs> <laughs> the most depressing album of all time. Wow. You know what's funny? I, awesome. I, I actually, that, that's one of the Lou records I do not have because I've, the reviews have made it sound so scary. I'm like, I really don't know if I want an album that dark. I'm putting it like that, I totally want to hear that album now. <laughs> because, I mean, I know how... There you're off now. I'm back. Um, yes, maybe. Nope. Well, hello. Hello, Lucy. You got some spinning to do. You're okay. You're okay now. Anyway. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I know how dark Lou can get when they're not saying he's really dark, and so when they're actually like warning you, <laughs> the most depressing album of all time. It's just sort of like, do I really want to go there? Oh, hell yeah. <clears throat> Was. 
That's cool. Um, well, let's see. Uh, oh, he's already ready. Okay. <clears throat> Although this band had a massive hit a few years earlier, there was little indication that the group was going to follow it up with a multi-platinum blockbuster album like this one. Hmm. Where the follow-ups... They're spending a lot of time talking about the previous album. Hmm. Uh, this album spun off four top ten singles. So unlike the previous album that had the one massive hit, but none of the follow-ups were all that successful, this album comes out, not only is it huge, it has four hit singles off of it. That's what they're trying to say. Okay. And uh, crystallized all of the band's influences. Stonesy rock and roll with pop, funk, contemporary dance pop into a cool, stylish dance rock hybrid. It was perfectly suited to the lead singer's feline sexuality, which certainly did not hurt the band's already inventive videos. But it wasn't just Image that provided their breakthrough. For the first and really only time, the band made a consistently solid album that had no weak moments from top to bottom. More than that, really, the album is impeccably crafted pop songs, a tour de force, the band succeeding at everything they try. Every track has at least a subtly different feel from what came before it. This album freely incorporates tense guitar riffs, rock and roll anthems, swing-tinged pop rock, string-laden balladry, danceable pop funk, horn-driven 60s soul, 80s R&B, and even a bit of the new wavish sound they'd started out with. More to the point, every song is catchy and memorable, branded with indelible hooks. Even without the band's sense of style, the flawless songcraft is intoxicating, and that's what makes this album one of the best mainstream pop albums of the 80s. And I'm going to tell you, this is indeed one of the best mainstream pop albums of the 80s. Holy mackerel. This is one of those, you know, we've talked before about uh, everybody owned one of such and such albums. Mm-hmm. This album would be probably be on the short list. You knew so- If you didn't own this, you knew somebody who did. <laughs> wow. <laughs> there were so many different, you know, uh, types of music you rattling off that they did, and I'm like, who did that many different types of songs and had huge hits and was an 80s icon and was was punk or was new wave and now is mainstream rock? I mean, wow, that's... It's also, I find it hard when you're reading these reviews about the new wave era. <clears throat> a lot of people, it's, it's a really confusing term, you know, because new wave can be... Joy Division or a flock of seagulls. <laughs> Two bands that have nothing in common. <laughs> that's, yeah, it's a rather wide spectrum. Um, boy, I, I... You know, when you were talking about it, it, it sounded like it would be something from Duran Duran. But since you just did them, it obviously can't be that. So... Um, and I was... Yeah... And it, well, the only thing I can think of, please synchronicity. <laughs> you're gonna, you're I, I went to the. I know, I know, but it just that one actually sounds. <laughs> I mean, it, it had you know, it they used to be new wave, mm-hmm. then they went mainstream. They had a bunch of success. There was all sorts of different uh, styles of music on that thing, and you know, it was one of those albums that. Almost everyone had, you know, or knew someone who had it. So it, it fits all the qualifications, even though I know it's not it. It's actually, uh, you were in a, a really good ballpark when you said that it was like Duran Duran. Because even though it had not really occurred to me, uh, it was, it's in excess kick. Oh, damn, I hate that album. And that, that really is in the same ballpark <laughs> as Duran Duran. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, the, without the, without the names and stuff, it definitely had, uh, Duran Duran, uh, that was definitely the first thing I kept thinking. I'm like, it can't be them, but it sounds exactly like it. I'm sad to hear that you hate that album because. Well, it was one of those things where I just, I heard it too much because everyone owned it. Yep. That, that, uh, I can't believe I forgot that. That was one of those things where it seemed like every person I knew either owned it or, you know, you knew somebody who, uh, boy, that thing was everywhere. Yeah, that was uh, that was a soundtrack to uh, many uh, misspent youth evenings. 
When I play that album now, it's hard for me not to want to go out and, you know, <laughs> commit serious misdemeanors. <laughs> you know, the fat guy in the tux or, <laughs> <laughs> or something. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of wild parties with that album playing in the background. Hmm, okay. Well, that's, yeah, that definitely does fit that. Hmm. Alright, I think I've got one more coming to me. Yes, yes, oh, sorry. I'm just, uh, mesmerized by the in excess. <laughs> we really do want to do this, uh, this is Nick and I, we're killing time between. Uh, so that's why we're telling you these non sequitur theater type stuff. Uh, don't want you to be bored while we're trying to find the, the next, uh, album. Uh, we really are interested in doing the big, uh, you know, Live Aid, uh, 27th anniversary <laughs> show this summer. But I will tell you, uh, I've been putting out the call on the Facebook page and here on the shows for people to send in stories. And maybe you just think that the stories are flooding in and so we don't need to hear about your story. I'm going to tell you something, uh, very embarrassing. Okay? Behind the curtain here. We don't have any. Nobody has sent in a single one yet. And so, Unless you want to have this extravaganza of Nick and I talking about, and we both probably experienced Live Aid in the same very lame way, probably, you know, sitting alone in a room watching it. <laughs> it's going to be hard to get 60 minutes out of that. Uh, so, you know, if you want to be part of the fun, you got to send in your own remembrances of Live Aid. So you've got to email that to us at mr80s at rocketmail.com or post it on our wall on our Facebook page. Like the Facebook page, me and Mr. 80s. Do you find one? Um, I, I did, but I'm going to actually choose another one because the album review is just way too obvious. <laughs> uh, Mr. 80s at rocketmail.com is M-I-S-T-E-R-8-0-S at rocketmail.com. Okay. Here we go. This is this artist at his smoothest. From fragility to earnestness. Um, he, he is, oh, okay, I get it, sorry, from, yeah, never mind. Uh, that was the original title of From Here to Eternity, I think, From Fragility <laughs> to Earnestness. And they said, you know, it, just, it doesn't roll off the top. It doesn't roll, yeah, exactly. Uh, this song charted fairly low in the UK, but exploded and went to number 15 in the United States, thanks to brilliant horn work and colorful jazz pop mingling of all the other instruments. Not to mention this, uh, um, this artist's suave singing. Um, let's see. Da, da, da. Sometimes sounding preserved and entertaining in the same light, this album uses some of the character of his 82 album, but instead of splitting up the music into mild jazz pop and modern R&B, he decided to tackle one of the genre's one of the genres wholeheartedly, and in doing so, he came up with a truly impeccable release. <laughs> oh, uh, this uh, this is my best guess. Uh, Robert Palmer's Riptide. Hmm, that's an interesting choice. Uh, it was Joe Jackson's Body and Soul. Ha! <laughs> wow. The reason that's interesting is because Joe Jackson is one of my all-time favorite artists, so that's surprising I didn't get that. Yeah, I, I was worried about picking one of them because I figured, oh, it's going to be too obvious. But uh, things I left off was uh, Body and Soul was Joe Jackson playing hot and cool-style cool jazz songs. So that was there. Um, really, that wasn't there wasn't a lot it, it all sounds, there. It all sounds very Robert Palmery. The only thing, the only reason I knew it wasn't Riptide is because. Uh, uh, it 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 was not a full embrace. You know, he didn't fully embrace on that album any one particular style. He was Palmer was still doing, kind of skipping around, and there was no there was, and there was absolutely no mention of Addicted to Love, which Addicted to Love was huge and would have been higher than number fifteen. But I, I had nothing. I had nothing in the tank. I think it's so. very odd that he charted low in UK since that's where he's from. Now wait, uh, I, the one I skipped, um, I was going to do Night and Day, mm-hmm. but. Uh, 82 will forever be known as the year the punks got class. Rivals for the title of Britain's angry young, reigning angry young man decided they were not just rockers, but really songwriters in the Tin Pan Alley tradition. I read that and I was like, 
that right there, I think, was going to, you know, give it away not only, you know, going on with the rest of the review, but I thought yeah. even if you don't say, you know, that was taking out, you know, Costello and uh, their names and stuff, it still was uh, an, an obvious. <clears throat> well, there you go. Yeah. So your uh, your victory that is that is coming <laughs> up happened eventually. Is still your only one. So uh, wow. Yes, folks. I actually came up with the idea for this. So obviously, great idea, bad in execution for me. Hopefully, it's entertaining you because that's the point. He just it's likes, supposed to be. He just likes torture. It's it's supposed to be fun and entertaining to listen to. I will say it's getting more even though. It's getting evener <laughs> because you've you've gotten some ballbusters. That you've uh, laid at my feet. So, ballbusters, you've laid at my feet. That's a mixed metaphor. <laughs> uh, all right. So, uh, stay tuned next week for uh, the dramatic conclusion <laughs> of Nick's experience at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. This is when we get into the stuff like, you know, oh, Axel was a no-show. Mm. And the wild close of the... Chili Peppers performance. Yes. So, uh, the best is yet to come. So you want to tune in for that. Uh, we've given you all of our spiel, and so unless you have anything more you want to add, I think that we're just nope. going to say uh, good night, good luck, you know, and see you next week.